Hello, podcast listeners. Today is a very special episode with Brandon Lake, founder and CEO of PPB Capital Partners, and Frank Burke, CIO at PPB Capital Partners. Before founding PPB Capital Partners, Brendan co-founded Pacer Financial, a startup that focused on developing alternative investment products for private wealth. Brendan earned his master's degree from Fells Institute, University of Pennsylvania, after graduating with a bachelor's degree from Temple University. Frank brings over 20 plus years of asset management, portfolio construction, and financial advisory experience. Prior to his current role at PPB Capital Partners, Frank was a former senior member of the portfolio management team at Heteris Funds, managing several of the firm's alternative investment fund of funds and co-investment strategies. Frank holds the CFA and the CAIA charters, and he earned his Master's of Business from Duke University and his Bachelor of Science from Villanova University. In today's episode, we discuss alternative strategies and the demand for them. I want to welcome both Brendan and Frank to the show, and I want to welcome all our listeners to a very special episode. This podcast is sponsored by the Hidden Value Stocks newsletter, published once a quarter, The Hidden Value Stocks newsletter contains at least two interviews with up-and-coming hedge fund managers and their top two favorite investment ideas. Each newsletter subscriber not only receives a detailed investment thesis on each idea, but we will also provide direct access to the fund's profile, as well as their quarterly updates. We are proud to report that the average annualized return of all 60 stocks profiled in Hidden Value Stocks since inception is 27.9%, with an average holding period of 319 days. To download a 10-page teaser issue or sign up for a five-day free trial, head over to hiddenvaluestocks.com. Podcast listeners can get 35% off the annual subscription price with discount code VIP19. Welcome to Value Talk with Raul. Just wanted to welcome all the listeners to a very special episode. I have Brendan Lake, CEO and founder of PPB Capital Partners, and Frank Burke, CIO. And Frank and Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Raul. Hi, Raul. Thank you. All right. Yeah, if we can just begin with both your backgrounds and what led you to finance and investing. What led me to finance and investment, I would say, Raul, is. Um, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I would say the movie Wall Street uh, with Michael Douglas. That was when I was like a sophomore, junior in high school. And uh, I found the whole thing fascinating. I grew up in in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia suburbs. So New York was very close to us. And uh, that's what got me excited about financial services, really the movie Wall Street. That movie was special to me, too, as well, growing up. I think about that. also something I really enjoyed watching and just uh, the whole markets in general or something I was always attracted to. Uh, so even in high school, I, I was interested in, in stocks and, and uh, the way the markets worked. So that was really the, the beginning of it. I, I was a, a finance major. Uh, I went to uh, Villanova for undergrad. And then uh, when I started my career, it was as a financial planner and just really enjoyed the investment aspect of it more so than the, the broader financial planning. I, I knew I really want to focus on investments. Uh, and in particular, uh, I was working with some 
fairly significant wealthy individuals uh, at my first firm. And that's where I was introduced to alternative strategies in general. And just, it was really fascinated the way that they were just different than the rest of the, rest of the public markets worked and, and how attractive those were to investors. That's where I knew I wanted to focus my career. Uh, ultimately went back for some designations. Uh, so I got my, my CFA charter uh, and my CAIA charter. Uh, and then went to uh, went to Duke Business School as well, uh, knowing that I wanted financial services, uh, strictly investing, the focus of my career uh, coming out of business school, uh, and really want to focus on alternative investment in particular. Nice. Again, Brendan, just want to know um, if you can tell me about your firm, why did you start it, and what your overall objective is. Why I started it, I always, I always, since I was a little kid. I always felt like an entrepreneur. Um, I was never afraid of not earning a salary and going out and trying to make, make something happen in the marketplace. Ironically, I paid a lot of my uh, college tuition by going down to the Philadelphia stadiums and buying and selling tickets. So I was a ticket scalper. Uh, for part of my uh, late high school and college years. And then I worked at different concessions outside. So I would start at zero. And, um, and at the end of the night, I would have, I would have something in my hands uh, that I made in terms of money and I would, and I would go home. And uh, my dad noticed that I'm one of nine kids and my dad noticed it. So I, I was I was paying my own college tuition, but it was a phenomenal it was a phenomenal lesson on how to start something, and um, you know to take on small amounts of risk, and to make something happen. Um, and then why I started PPB, it was just kind of a, I would say a maturation through financial services. I started in financial services in 1994. Um, and then I left to go back to school in 2002. I got a master's degree, and then I came back into the space, into the alternative investment space in like 04, 05, and then branched off and started PPB and launched in July of 08. Um, <clears throat> so why I started it, though, I think more to your question the entrepreneurism I felt as a young kid, as I touched on, and then just wanting to do something on my own. I saw when I got into financial services, I was in a very entrepreneurial company and I get, and that company ended up selling to Hartford life insurance company, but the founders were super entrepreneurial. um, And each of the three had different dynamics about them themselves in terms of uh, their talent levels and well they were all, all three were super talented but just what they were good at and I just found it fascinating to watch and I uh, understood all three and what their personal value propositions were um, and I just felt like I could I could do the same thing um, <clears throat> you know and and so I just I got I got just uh, personal momentum and confidence and I just said, I think I can try this myself. So we started super small, uh, and then we've just grown today to uh, about two and a half billion 
Uh, there's 18 employees. We're growing right now at 30 to 40% a year. And, uh, but it's taken a long time, Raul. Um, during that time, the July 08, can you tell me more about that? Why at that time it was a good time to do it? July of 08, if you remember back to that period, it wasn't, I believe Bear Stearns had, 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 um, had blown up for lack of a better term that spring, <clears throat> but the, the real heavy financial crisis hadn't hit yet. And so I launched feeder funds to 10 hedge funds, launched the platform. <clears throat> and then that fall, and of course, December, Bernie Madoff was exposed and they were all feeder funds. And so I, you know, at that point, um, I didn't think we were going to last. We got into 09, 10, um, where I got some confidence is advisors were saying, weren't saying no to feeder funds. They were saying, you got to add due diligence. You've got to get a due diligence partner to really vet each of the managers um, that are on the platform. So we hired a consulting firm to do the due diligence. We were really, at that point, I was learning that, you know, anything can be worked out. Uh, if you do it the right way, and most importantly, if you listen to your potential client and, and don't, uh, one of the big lessons I learned early on, Raul, I, I listened, I listened in this situation. I listened to the, in, in our case, PPB calls on and works with United States-based private wealth groups. And so, like Frank touched on a minute ago, he really liked working with high net worth clients. So we work with the advisors that work with very high net worth families in the U.S., mostly in the U.S., 10 to 15 percent are international. <clears throat> and so at that point in, in 09, 10 and 11, I was listening. Um, I made a couple of mistakes in that period when I didn't listen. But when they were saying, you've got to add this, you've got to add that, they were asking for private equity and private real estate right at that point, too. I didn't, re I didn't react quick enough. Uh, I, I, it cost me about six months or a year um, when I didn't add private equity and, and private real estate or, and private credit. I just had hedge funds on the platform. So that was a lesson. But I was adding more services around the platform and listening to my market. Nice. Yeah, I uh, just want to know more about alternative strategies. Uh, what are they? And if you can give some examples of strategies that are currently in demand. Okay, that's sure. a frank question. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and so, uh, to me, you have your traditional investments, which, which are your stock and bonds that are publicly traded. And that's where the bulk of high net worth investors, traditionally, that's where the, they've been putting their assets. Um, what I was describing, just to uh, some of my, my first jobs of working with wealthy and wealthier individuals uh, where I was introduced to alternative strategies. It was trying to find ways where they could make money but not be as correlated or subject to the broader market swings of the public markets and find ways to get return streams that were generating similar returns to what the stocks were doing on the public side, uh, but not having that, that same market risk and volatility. And so traditional strategies there and, and uh, for that fit this description 
will of course be uh, hedge funds. Uh, so I mean, they've actually been around for quite a long time, but uh, just really grew in popularity uh, coming out of uh, the tech bubble in the early 2000s, where they, they really did take off. And that's where they started to become more popular for high net worth in general. That's, that's when they, that more people started to realize what they were. And that actually created the whole fund to fund business really in the hedge fund side, uh, which is also where I spent some time prior to coming to PPB here as a hedge fund, uh, fund to funds manager there in that space. But other strategies in general, people were investing in private companies forever, going back you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years. The, the reality is uh, they're so used to getting exposure from the public markets now, but private investments have always been what people classify as an alternative to so private equity, private credit, uh, in addition to these hedge fund strategies, real estate uh, are an alternative strategy. It's not, it's not stock bond, but it's a good way in, in terms of where assets are going. That's where you see a lot of hot high net worth money starting from an alternative asset class. Real estate's very easy to get a handle on and understand what's happening. It's a tangible asset uh, and it provides great inflation protection. Uh, so where we're seeing demand, that's where the assets are going right now. It's just everyone's concerned about uh, inflation number uh, things spiraling out of control. And so how do you hedge your portfolio accordingly? Well, real estate's been a really good traditional way to do that. Uh, certainly in areas where you're getting uh, rents because that those are gonna, those are gonna float, they're gonna roll uh, as leases roll off, uh, they can be increased. And so that's a good way to get an increasing uh, income stream to keep up with inflation when we are worried about price increases across the board. That's been big. And then just with all the volatility that's ended the markets, going back to the beginning of the year here, um, trying to find other types of strategies that don't have market correlation. Uh, one area I'll, I'll mention is pharmaceutical royalties, just income streams just tied to drug payouts. So not being subject to and the broader fluctuations of the stock market. So, so that's interesting. And this, this can provide a nice uh, income stream uh, regardless of the market environment. What we found, particularly uh, coming out of the credit crisis where rates have been so low, is that alternative structures generating income have been really popular across the board. That goes back to real estate. Well, there's other forms of private credit as well, like these royalty strategies. It's just, it was just so hard to generate any kind of yield in this environment with rates being where they were, that uh, investors are, are more willing to lock up capital longer to generate a higher yield. And all fits under this alternative investment uh, umbrella. Those remain popular, uh, but also just more volatility protection right now in the, forms of, in the form of hedge funds is what we're seeing, given where the, what we're, where the markets have gone and, and even Rates are certainly rising, but they're still very near historic lows. Couldn't generate yield. The um, the hedge funds with the volatility protection. Um, what kind of strategies are those? Yeah, so you have your your long short equity strategies are the most common, uh, where the long positions on the on, these are publicly traded positions, and uh, one thing with the vast majority of hedge funds. 
while we say alternative investments, they're still investing in, in public securities here, but they're doing it in a more risk you know, controlled way to, to mitigate that volatility uh, by having long positions on the public side, but also taking short positions when they, when they see companies that could decline and the stocks are overvalued. And so you net that out and you have a very low market exposure overall for that reason. So that's a common way to do it. You have um, multi-strategy hedge funds that combine that not only positions and stocks, but doing the same thing on the bond side, uh, using uh, options as well arbitrage strategies where they're, they're taking on uh, lower market exposures. So you're not, again, being exposed to as much the broader market movements, but they are employing more leverage because the price movements are so small there, you're gonna amplify that with leverage, knowing you're not taking as much risk with the overall market movement there. Uh, that's you're generating a higher return. So th that's what you're seeing. Uh, a number of different hedge fund strategies there. Strat side, global macro, which is allowing, just like it says, it's making macro. These managers are making macro bets on, on, on broader uh, public markets everywhere in the globe, and uh, investing in securities on the long and short side appropriately, just based on where they see perceived either under or over values uh, in the global securities markets. But again, typically employing more leverage because they, they, they tend to be more buttoned up with the broader exposures. And um, yeah, uh, I know you mentioned the volatility uh, this year. So can you tell me about the current environment for public equities? Uh, what are the challenges and why investors are seeking um, or how alternative strategies will help with that? Yeah, so it's been... Quite a ride for the equity markets uh, coming into late last year, uh, where there's just a lot of Fed support and, and government stimulus across the board that have really just, for a lack of a better word, propped up valuations because the, the cost of capital was so low. Uh, central banks made borrowing very easy and capital very accessible, and that translated going right into the prices of risk assets. and and, and and so there wasn't really much investors had to worry about because there was a backstop from the Fed. You take on more and more risk and you're being rewarded. Uh, what we've seen is in inflation pressure is getting out of control as a result of that. And now, of course, the Fed's cutting that back. That's, the, that's why the other central banks are on the globe. And that's translating directly to more volatility in the markets, uh, certainly from inflation fears. And then, of course, uh, Ukraine conflict. It's just adding a lot of stress to the system. And the central banks just don't have as much that they can do to protect investors the way they, they were doing historically. So, what we've seen is really a more return to a fundamental market, uh, where as opposed to just putting your money into anything. In the, any risk asset on the public side is watching it grow. Uh, investors have to be much, much more focused on, on earnings and what companies are able to do right now. And, and thus, it is a healthier environment for investing overall. And we're seeing valuations adjust accordingly. But, much, but 
more normalized is what I'll say. And that's that's a good thing. That's something that had to happen because the, the past decade prior coming out of the credit crisis, it was everything just got artificially run up and it makes for a very difficult, made a very difficult environment to know where to put capital with everything already priced so high. So what we've seen now is yes, the, the markets have certainly come back. Uh, the growth names that really took off uh, in the tailwinds of work from home initiatives and just other areas of technology that in online retail, certainly uh, that the pandemic really just pushed some of those companies to get ahead of themselves from an evaluation standpoint. Uh, but they've continued to, to grow fundamentally, but just not at the rate where the markets had priced them prior. So, so the correction that they've experienced is, has been healthy and good to put valuations more in line, but uh, many would argue now that it's, it's actually gone the other way where some of these companies have continued to, to do well uh, fundamentally, but they've been penalized just from the, just the names of the they're, they're business lines in general. And, and so back to what it means for the markets now, it is much more normal and which means you're gonna see more historic volatility, which just completely got removed from the system the last uh, decade prior, right? it, was, it was way too easy to generate a return. So that makes for a better environment for you know, alt strategies uh, for sure, where leverage levels, rates are still, well, as I said, they're still, they're still low rates, but they, but they are climbing. So capital is still barely available to put to work, which does help these alt strategies when they are using more leverage in general. So they're still going to continue to do well, but it, you just have to be a little more uh, fundamentally driven right now uh, to really focus on on earnings in general and on the private side, just how these companies are continuing to grow their, their top lines and, of course, ultimately their, their bottom line. Make sure that the valuations are justified on both public and private. Yeah, I was going to ask more about the private because um, we are, yeah, with valuations being high in the public markets uh, this or the past year. Um, have valuations come down in the private markets or are they returning to a normal? Valuations, yeah. So what we're seeing, certainly it, they're coming down, yes, but it, it just takes time compared to obviously security. And so on the growth equity side, one of the big, differences compared to a year ago, certainly, is the exit environment. So as these companies are going out to become public, the market's just, for all intents and purposes, that market's just completely dried up given all the volatility right now, certainly for, for these, these tech news. And so there has to be an adjustment in valuations to accommodate that. Timing is going to be longer compared to what it was last year and, and, and years prior. But so many deals got done last year in anticipation of this happening. So that was no surprise. And, and just in anticipation of the, of the exit environment, just, just changing and rates going up and the markets correcting as they have. So it's just going to take uh, a little longer for exits to happen now. And so you're going to, yeah, so that's going to translate to 
evaluations uh, coming in to reflect that because it's just going to be a longer holding period and thus it does affect how much you're going to pay up front for that business. It's extensive. All right. Um, just want to know um, are, are alternative strategies accessible? Um, if not, why is it difficult for um, advisors to access? I can touch on that, and then and then I know Frank will have an a uh, an in, an opinion or insight as well. At the beginning of the alternative investment asset class, say when it, when when they really when institutions started to buy them, what was it, Frank? Thirty years ago? Yeah, I'd say even probably forty. Forty years ago. I mean, if you if you go back even longer than that, you've got you know private equity, private equity, private company deals and ownership has gone on since the beginning of time. When we we if we come to the present, so the last thirty years, um, they're in a partnership structure, and so the SEC rule uh, under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, Regulation D says that you can have limit, limited amounts of investors um, and you have to have a certain amount of net worth <clears throat> to, to buy uh, into a, uh, and become a limited partner in a, in a limited partner, general partner structure. And so I think that's what for many years kept uh, high net worth investors uh, out of the game. <clears throat> um, what we've done at PPB is we've tried to expand the entry points and the access points for the high net worth market. Um, remember, this is uh, Raul. This most of this stuff is relatively illiquid, <clears throat> so that's another reason why investors. And still today, some advisors will say, we just don't do private equity. We just don't do private credit, private real estate because of the illiquidity. Uh, so investors can't get their money back, you know, every day like they can in a mutual fund or an ETF. So I think the, the market today, investors generally are becoming more comfortable with illiquidity for small parts of their portfolio. That's another reason for you, you asked Frank about growth and why growth in the alternative asset class. I think another reason, uh, along with his his um, you know good commentary there, is that investors are becoming more comfortable with some illiquidity in their portfolio, and they get it more. The education level of an illiquid investment has increased quite a bit as well. Uh, Vanguard, if you looked in the last couple of years, they're now, they now have a, a private equity platform for clients where five years ago they had zero. So it's becoming more commonplace and therefore firms like PPB are growing because of it. And so the platform lines up investments. And what we try to do is just take away all the time factors involved with making investments. So advisors have to do due diligence. They have to worry about reporting. 
Sometimes the minimums are really high, so high net worth investors can't afford uh, to invest in a private equity fund with a five, 10, or $25 million minimum. So what PPB has done is we've created a middle office, we call it, where it solves for the due diligence, it solves for the reporting, it solves for the high minimums, it solves for investing. You can't just drop a ticket or buy one of these investments off of a you know, fit out, out of a Fidelity app or the Schwab app or uh, another one of these, um, uh, a Vanguard app. You know, you have, it's, it's, there's a lot more qualification questions and process that you have to go through in order to buy a private equity fund. <clears throat> what PPB has done is tried to solve and streamline and simplify and make a turnkey middle office so the private equity funds on one side and the investors and advisors on the other side can meet PPB right in the middle and have all those services provided for both parties to make it easy for investors to invest in private equity. Some people call it democratization of private equity and private investing. Um, I think there's some truth to that, but that's really why we're in the marketplace and what we're trying to accomplish is to get investors the same access points as large institutions have had for 30 or 40 years. I forgot to ask, um, on the middle office aspect of it. So you guys aren't necessarily, um, advising like from a financial advisor standpoint, like uh, on how to allocate a certain percentage to alternative uh, strategies, you're just providing the accessibility to uh, to those alternative strategies. That's a good question. Yes, we are a business to business firm where the private wealth advisor is a business to client, so they're B to C. <clears throat> yes, we're B to B. What we're doing is providing all the piping all the piping. So advisors, advisors don't have, they don't want to build this themselves, Raul. It's way too expensive. It's way too time consuming. They need someone like us to come in the middle of the fund because the fund sponsor wants to go to, still wants to go to these big institutions and spend their time with big institutions for the big checks. So the small checks we take in, in most of our funds, we take five, 10 and $25 million minimums down to a hundred thousand, sometimes even 50,000. So there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of work in order to streamline it and make it feel simple for the investor and the advisor and the fund sponsor to have everyone feeling that it's a clean entry point highly compliant, due diligence, reporting, lower minimums, all the things I said, there's a lot of work there in between. And that's what we're accomplishing. So yes, we are business to business and providing that service to the advisor that's basically providing our service to their clients. Makes sense. All right. Um, just wanted to switch over slightly here to broad-based index investing. Um, just want to know your guys' thoughts on this approach. What are the limitations 
and why should investors uh or what should they consider beyond that yes i, I can touch on that and going back to brennan's point about vanguard too it's been a very successful uh, strategy to index invest for, for years but it does depend on the market environment and what i was describing before where it was so easy to make money uh well that certainly was the case with just putting money in broader indices it, it is certainly less expensive it's, it's the cheapest way you can possibly invest you're not incurring the cost of getting access to public market exposures but when you are subject to beyond just the volatility in general of being invested there is just pressures of redemption flows as other investors and, and significant investors start moving out when they when they are worried about macro events or see this selling pressures on the broader markets. It, that's that's the reason Vanguard moved into the private space. They, they, they knew they were so subject to all these potential flows that could just come right out uh, in, in, a, in a broad move and in, in businesses, uh, business, but from an investor standpoint, you are bullish in the markets, so you don't want to be subject to volatility swings based on what other investors are doing. And so that's always going to be an issue. Index investing, is certainly with ETFs, where they've become so commonplace and, and such a big piece of IRA money, it's just that, that's where so many assets are right now. Uh, having a way to diversify around that is important, and alternative investing. Certainly, is a key way to do that. Makes sense. Just want to know what you guys see as the future of investing. I think what we're you're on mute. Sorry about that. My take as a entrepreneur, Frank would have an investment take on it. I think that. Vanguard's going to get bigger. Indexing is going to get bigger. ETFs are going to get bigger. Long only active management has gotten smaller and it feels to me like it's going to keep getting smaller. The active manager with Frank's point at the beginning, the active mutual fund long only manager in a long only mutual fund, a um, U.S. growth equity uh, mid-cap growth equity manager in the last 12 years since all that stimulus was put into the economy they really struggled and and so many of them have closed i don't know how they come back because there's just so much going on in in the etf space actively managed etfs maybe that's where they go but private investing it just feels to me that you know, the uh, Jobs Act, the Obama Jobs Act expanded the amount of investors that can go into a Reg D product, a, a general partner, limited partnership structure, as I touched on earlier. They expanded the amount of investors. It used to be 500. Now it's 2,000. There's so much going on in the private markets. Um, it's an excellent way to uh, offer an investment. Uh, and you can get access and entry points to stuff that you cannot find in the public markets. So it just feels to me the future 
is uh, smaller. I think uh, I think the the marketing of financial products. It feels to me that the industry is actually getting smaller. It's contracting. Vanguard's going to grow. ETFs are going to grow, and private investing, the niche market that we're in, is going to continue uh, to expand. Yeah, I concur with that. It, you're even seeing with the SEC changes come here that they want to find a way to make alternative strategies more available to the general public, uh, knowing that it is this environment right now, volatility has increased and there is a definite need to, to help mitigate that with these types of strategies. And, and so you're going to, it is going to be more democratized where, where it's available to more people. And even the, the actual fund managers themselves in this space are trying to find ways to continue to diversify their own client base into this into more than high net worth investors. And, and so that, that's certainly a key piece of what we see with our business. And so that, that's only going to continue and you're going you're to see alternative investments become just a, a bigger and bigger piece of everyday portfolios uh, moving forward here. And just want to know your thoughts on crypto and is that a viable um, alternative investing? A viable investment, just knowing it's extremely speculative. Uh, but that, that brings a, a good point, though, from the, the, the last question. Uh, blockchain in general is, is another way that will help provide a better access to alternatives, too. Just that type of uh, structure to help facilitate some of the regulatory challenges and, and sort of disqualifications that have to be done uh, to get investors in currently. Crypto, type, crypto and blockchain are, are a good way to do that. Um, people just have to realize, from an investment standpoint, with the digital asset, how volatile it's going to be and just accept that. So it, it's viable. I, I would not consider it a uh, replacement for a store of value for, for uh, transaction purposes. But uh, from a perspective of investment, uh, yes, it has a place in it, absolutely. Is there any demand for it, or from uh, from who you're speaking with? Oh, there is, there is, but just under the you know, and we certainly have crypto strategies on our platform. We have advisors building dedicated fund of funds just to invest in various digital asset managers, and, and we see uh, backed companies there. But yeah, all I was going to say, understanding yeah. it has to be managed appropriately. Yeah, I, I would say too, Raul. It's um, it's it's uh, it's like venture capital. So venture capital funds, five years ago, to a financial advisor, this private wealth enterprise that we've talked about throughout the call. These private wealth guys that are serving high net worth families around the U.S. Five years ago. They were very, uh, venture capital investing was uh, too far in terms of interest levels because of the speculative, you know, risk factors that are in, you know, investing in, you know, super early stage businesses. So 
But Frank, how about today with venture capital? I mean, I don't know an advisor that's not interested in it. So, you know, they keep the advisors. What I have found with the financial advisory community, like anyone, you know, it just takes time to make an asset class interesting. You know, if there's risk, it's all about risk assessment. And the risk, these guys, these private wealth guys are risk managers. So the ultimate question is, does crypto and blockchain become, right now, there's a lot of skepticism around it because, of the, as, as Frank said, it's so speculative. And the volatility can be enormous. It can go up 80%, but it can go down. You know, we've seen funds go down 50 and 60%. At PPB, that's really not what we're trying to accomplish, to put a manager on our platform that, that has those kinds of volatility swings. Um, but at the same time, as I touched on at the way beginning of this conversation, we're serving the U.S. financial advisory community, the private wealth community. And when they have demand, when there's demand for something, we're going to serve that demand. But as Frank said, the speculative nature right now, maybe in five years as, it, as the return pattern, instead of it being, you know, here, when, it, when, it, when, when the volatility swings kind of commit more into a uh, manageable um, high and low, then, then I think there'll be more interest in it. All right. Just wanted to switch over to some personal questions here. Uh, what are you guys' favorite books? Go ahead, Frank. It's all yeah. you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, for me, I I'm really into uh, I enjoy historical fiction and, and history books in general. So I, I like uh, David McCulloch's uh, 1776, John Adams. Um, those are all personal favorites, and um, related to that, uh, Ken Follett as well as one of my favorite authors uh, in the historical fiction side. The whole. Kingsbridge series, which I, I enjoy. It's those longer trilogies that he's done. Uh, always been favorites. I would say um, on the business side, a book that I, I go back to a lot is um, a, it was written by Don Keogh, who grew up right across the street from Warren Buffett. He ended up becoming the CEO of Coca-Cola. He's now passed away, but he wrote a book about 10 or 15 years ago called nine, <clears throat> nine, nine ways to fail in business. Um, nine guarantees of business failures. And so it was interesting because you read so many books on what to do. And he was, he, he wrote about nine things not to do. And um, it's an easy read. And, it just really resonated with me. He's a, you know, super humble guy, but, but gave me a lot of things to think about as a small business entrepreneur. Um, I also like to read uh, that the John Adams book had a, had a huge impact on me. I live in Philadelphia. So much of it was based in Philadelphia. Um, and then the revolutionary period was entrepreneurial. And so I, I found the revolutionary period 
to be super fascinating. Um, I lived in an area that where, where it was all basically taking place by Independence Hall in Philadelphia. So the, the Adams book and then the follow-up, the, um, the, uh, the six-part series on John Adams, they converted it to a, uh, into a six-part series, was fascinating as well. Just want to know, what are you guys' hobbies? My, my hobbies are, uh, I have a five-year-old daughter. So that's a lot of time. That's time consuming. And then we're based here in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. And uh, right behind Conshohocken, right behind our office building is the Schuylkill River. Um, so I row a single skull um, on the Schuylkill River, River. I love to do that. I'm in my early 50s. So uh, it's a full body workout and it's, um, you know, exercise like, like no other. Um, so I like to spend a lot of time with my wife and daughter. And uh, when I can, I like to uh, go out and, and row on the Schuylkill River. For me, uh, I'm in heaven right now. I'm a college basketball junkie. I got two of my schools in the Final Four. So uh, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. And so <laughs> I'm a huge, huge Villanova fan, season ticket holder. So it's, it's, or I just love following them around. Uh, that that's number one and uh secondly just just really enjoy golf uh, when i can get out there and is there a dream golf course that uh you would like to to go one day yeah that's a good question uh there's <laughs> quite a few i i I'd say i haven't i haven't gotten over to uh, scotland yet so i'd love i love to play st andrews oh nice that'd be really cool all right. Just want to know your closing thoughts. Closing thoughts are uh, we, we really appreciate this. We appreciate you uh, inviting us onto your podcast. And, um, you know, we ask, we're asked a lot about would we sell PPB? You know, would, we, would we sell it to a, uh, an acquiring firm that wants to get into the alternative asset class? I think, Raul, that there's other competitors that we have in the marketplace. And there's a lot of other firms over the years that have tried to do this alternative platform B2B model. And I just personally feel that they're not, they're not building their businesses with their client, with the advisor's client as the number one priority and, and it creates conflicts of interest. And so I don't, I don't think that that, and I think it should be the number one priority. The number one priority in, in the PPB business model is the advisor and the advisor's client supersede everything. And we deliver our solutions into the marketplace so that client does the best and not us or not private equity investors that are, at, that are owning part of our business. PPB, the employees, are own well into majority land. So we can make all the decisions based on the right thing to do for the advisor and the client. Others have all kinds of 
investors backing them and those investors need their money back. And in many cases, it ends up being uh, on the, uh, it, it ends up being less for the client because these other platforms have to deliver returns basically back to private equity investors. We don't have those conflicts. And so going forward, we want to stay in that mindset and in control where we can own the relationship with the advisor and PPB. So we make that advisor look great in the eyes and the return profile for their clients. All right. And uh, yeah, just wanted to thank both of you for taking time for the podcast and thank you for sharing your wisdom on this topic. Well, likewise. Thank you, Raul. Hello, Value Walk listeners. I want to thank you for your time. If you have any guest recommendations, questions, comments, and feedback, please email me at rpanganaban at valuewalk.com. I would love to hear back from you and appreciate your support. Thank you again.